begin. Our Father, we thank you that you have <clears throat> provided for us in all of your grace through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, through his ascent, and through his sending of the Holy Spirit. We ask that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts to the knowledge of himself as we proceed into this area of study. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to pretty well stick to the notes on the third person of the Trinity. And uh, when we worked with the um, fifth uh, pamphlet, remember that we, at that point, went through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to review uh, those four parts that we did on the life of Christ because they figure prominently in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And that's because... The Trinity has this structure to it such that the center of revelation is always the Son. The Father is always the source of things that happen. The Son is the content or His expression. And that's why in the Trinity um, it says that in the beginning... uh, in, in uh, the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through the Word. And it's clearly uh, true that John, the Apostle, at the point that he's writing that, has Genesis 1 in mind. And when you look at Genesis 1, you look at the structure, it says, God said, and something happened. God said, and something happened, and he saw, and it was good. Or God said, he did, this happened, and it was good that he had made these things. So, in all that, um, the Holy Spirit is involved, but the, the content of it, uh, of what God does, is focused in the Word or in his Son. And so, that we get this straight, because... The notes, that, which will be the last section, I'm not going to finish this chapter this, this spring and summer, so we'll have to, in the fall, when we resume in September, um, we'll uh, pick up where we left off, obviously, in the work of the Spirit, um, right in the middle of a chapter. We never had to do that before. Um, but we're going to deal, in the notes that were handed out tonight, about regeneration. And... You can't talk about that work of the Holy Spirit if you don't first uh, go back to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. So we have to link all this together, and that's why we want to review just for a moment this, uh, the birth, uh, life, and death, and resurrection of Christ. So we understand if, this is, if Christ is the greatest and ultimate revelation of God, then obviously we ought to spend some time looking at what's going on. And we did, remember, we talked about the birth of Christ. And when we did that, we spent an awful lot of time on what we call, theologians call, the hypostatic union. Meaning that he is God and he is man. And in some mysterious way, he's not two people. One person with two natures. And of all the Trinity, he's the only one of the Trinity that's like that. And that carries certain implications. Remember, we said there's some practical uh, effects of this, uh, one of which is that history has eternal significance. 
In other words, acts that happen, decisions that are made, events that occur. All these things in history have eternal repercussions because God, who is immutable and eternal, now has a body. And what is true of the Lord Jesus Christ's body? He has scars. And for all eternity, he has scars caused by what? Caused by an event in history. And this is not just some scholarly stuff I'm talking about here. It's very practical because in the East, in Oriental religions, there's a trend toward viewing reality as a big dream. It doesn't really have substance. And it's only in the Bible that history has significance and it has eternal repercussions. All that's wrapped up in it. But it's ra it starts with the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, as God, took upon himself human nature. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It didn't cease being God. Well, then we moved on to the life of Christ. And the point there is that when you deal with the life of Christ, these three theology words are describing how Jesus lived. And I want to review these three words because when you read the notes, you'll see this comes up again. Can't get away from Christ when we start talking about the Holy Spirit. So, let's, let's go through these three words and just review them. One word was the word kenosis. And that's a Bible word taken from Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself, and so forth. That's the word kenosis. That's where it comes from. And it's talking about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, from the time he was born until the time he died on the cross, relied in his humanity, not upon his deity, but he relied in his humanity upon the Holy Spirit. Remember what we defined kenosis? What is the definition and the meaning of the word kenosis? It means that Jesus Christ gave up the voluntary use of his divine attributes. Now be careful of this, because the liberals have a, have a false kenosis. It says that, God, that Jesus Christ gave up his attributes. He did not at any point ever give up any of his divine attributes. He was always God. But the amazing thing was that, for example, when he would be tempted by Satan, I mean, as God, he could have wiped Satan right off the map, right there. Zap, and Satan would have been gone. But the Lord Jesus Christ didn't zap Satan. The Lord Jesus Christ met Satan through his humanity, relying upon the Holy Spirit. That has powerful repercussions. Now, I don't know whether you remember that, but a year or so ago, when we were going through this, we had a lot of Q&A about these words, and I said, we're not through with them. We're going to come back to those words, and now we're coming back to them. And the notes that I handed out tonight start coming back to those words. So we can't get away from this because Jesus Christ is the heart of Revelation, and these words are descriptions of things that we need to know about this marvelous period in history. So kenosis means that Jesus Christ lived his life by faith, trusting in the trustworthiness of God in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, Jesus Christ is, can be looked upon as a pioneer in the Christian way of life. 
He was, so to speak, the test pilot who pushed the envelope. He demonstrated the filling of the Holy Spirit. He demonstrated what a life of trust looks like. And he was successful, 100% successful in doing it. And that's why he is installed as our judge. See, the Father has entrusted judgment to the Son, and that's more than just a little theological note. There's a reason for that. Because in the Trinity, which person in the Trinity has felt what it means to be a human? The Son. And therefore, that's why the Bible says that God has, the Father has entrusted judgment to the Son. Now, when we talk about uh, evaluations and judgments and trials and law and courtrooms and that sort of thing, what is the word that you hear used when we say every person has a right to a trial by jury of their peers? What does it mean to be a trial by jury by your peers? Well, your peers are people who understand you, people who are in your same sphere of life. Well, if you think about it, that's why God the Father has entrusted judgment to God the Son. Because human beings are going to be evaluated by another human being. It's the second person of the Trinity who becomes judge. He's not just Savior. Remember we always said, judgment, salvation. Judgment, salvation. Whoever saves also judges. Whenever God tries to save, he also judges. Whenever God judges, he also saves. So you can't separate those two. So Jesus the Savior is also Jesus the Judge. And he's Jesus the Judge because he's our peer. In the sense that, kenosis. Jesus Christ lived his life in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Now, we had a more controversial thing here. Remember, we used the word impeccability. And there's two Latin phrases that have been used down in church history. One is, posi non pecari, and the other is non posi pecari. And the idea is, the first one says that he is able not to sin. Okay? Jesus Christ is able not to sin. But the second term is non posi pecari. He is not able to sin. And that kind of freaks people out because it tends to argue that, well, then how could he be tempted? Well, if you'll associate the first statement, he is able not to sin with his humanity and you associate the second statement, he is not able to sin with his deity. Now you've got the two statements together. Problem is, they're in one person. So therefore, Jesus Christ in his person, it was absolutely certain he would never sin. Had he done so, it would have fractured the hypostatic union. So it was certain that he would never sin. But the fact that he was human and able not to sin means that he was open to temptation. And that's the mystery. We don't understand this. This is tough stuff. All we know is that the word able in those two statements, it's not simultaneous. It's not synonymous. In other words, the verb able in able not to sin has a different nuance than the verb able in he is not able to sin. One is handling his humanity, one is handling his deity. So it's not a contradiction. It's, there's a different spin on that, that verb in those two sentences. 
And it all has to do with the mystery of the hypostatic union. See, that's why you can't separate this stuff. Kenosis and impeccability presupposes the hypostatic union. Now, I review all that because the Holy Spirit, at, starting at Pentecost, is going to reveal these things. And he's going to make a deal out of it. Why, why these things are true. Now, the death of Christ, we've stressed the substitutionary blood atonement. But you'll see that, and you get into the New Testament, there's something else that's also stressed. There's a mysterious way in which believers are said to have died with Christ, been crucified with Christ. And so we've got to revisit that whole area. And then, resurrection. Jesus Christ is glorified, and the New Testament says somehow we are already, prior to our resurrection, we are already in some way identified with Christ's resurrection and ascension, seated with him in the heavenlies. Now, not future. Now, present tense. So all this is wrapped up, and you notice it's all focusing on whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. I make this point, and here's the bottom line of what I'm saying by way of introduction to the third person, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's emphasis is not upon the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's emphasis is upon God the Son. The Holy Spirit's emphasis is always Christ-centered, never Spirit-centered. And that's been a source of confusion in church history. It really has. And we still have people, uh, I mean, some absolutely bizarre stuff going on and it's all the Holy Spirit did this, and the Holy Spirit did that. The Holy Spirit is in the revealing business. He is in the saving business. He is in the regeneration business. He is in the indwelling business. And usually the people that freak out over all the Holy Spirit stuff, they don't even know what these words mean. And they're biblical words. So there's an order to the Trinity. The third person elevates and reveal, reveres the second person, just as the second person elevates and reveres his father. Jesus always deferred to his father, and the Holy Spirit always defers to Jesus Christ. So let's make a little practical application here. How can you detect a genuine work of the Holy Spirit? Predict. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He is doing something to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ. So a detection device or a meter that tells you whether something is of the Holy Spirit or not is what does this something tell us about Jesus Christ and his work? That's how you tell whether it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Not whether it's hoopla, but people freaking out, uh, laughing like hyenas or whatever it is that they do in Toronto. And going through all the stuff, that doesn't tell me a thing about Jesus Christ. So let's get it straight. At the core of Christian theology is the Trinity, and you never get away from it. That structure is always there. Now on the notes on page 42, we start with the person of the, of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to... Uh, go through that tonight, and then the next week, our last class, will deal with the first of several works of the Holy Spirit. Uh, last time I introduced the statement there by Dr. Chafer uh, on page 42, 
where he facetiously quotes Acts 19.1. And uh, it's, it's a kind of humorous quote where the disciples say, we have not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Spirit. And Schaefer goes on to point out that almost every error or disproportionate emphasis upon some aspect of doctrine on the part of a few is caused by the neglect of that truth on the part of the many. And his idea is an appeal for us to understand the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And if we, church, had done this over the last three or four hundred years since the Reformation, uh, things would have been a lot more stable. All right, first truth. Just as we refer to God the Son as begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, you know, creed. So there's a term that is associated with the third person of the Trinity, and it's called proceeding. Now that's not in the Bible in the sense of the way it's used here, but yes, it is in the Bible in another sense, because what do we learn on the day of Pentecost? What did Peter say that Jesus did when he got to the Father's right hand? He sent the Holy Spirit. And that's what it means. He proceeds. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And you'll see that in creeds. That's what it means when you recite the great creeds of, of Christianity. You'll, you'll see that statement. The Holy Spirit, you may not, not have appreciated what that statement means and what these guys... Know. They weren't just met at McDonald's for you know, a supper someday and they cranked out these creeds. These creeds were thought out, debated, argued about, voted upon. I mean, a lot of work went into those great creeds. And this term was put in there for a very interesting reason. Now, I want you to follow with me through the notes because we're going to get into some verses, but before we get into those verses, I want to take you on a little tour of church history. And I want you to see something about how history in the West unfolded in a certain way in which we still live. We still live in, in that kind of a history. And it all comes by the influence of Christianity in world history. Now, this is not something you're going to get in school, secular school, because this kind of stuff is all filtered out of the curriculum, except by a few bold and courageous teachers who defy the system and do teach it anyway. The Holy Spirit is said to be eternally begotten of the Father. It is eternally proceeds from both the Father and the Son. The Son is said to be begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit is said to be eternally perceived in the Father. So notice the difference. The Son is not said to be begotten by the Holy Spirit. It says the Son is begotten from the Father only. But when you get to the Holy Spirit, the third person, he is said to have proceeded from both the Father and the Son. Now that may sound like a little silly argument as to why do you have to have both training? This is hair splitting and gosh, you know, I can't be bothered with these theological fine points. Well, we're going to see how theologically fine point this is. Have you ever heard the expression, it doesn't matter one iota? It's, be, it's an idiom. You know where that came from? That is a quote from a guy who wrote the history of the fall of the, of the, fall of the Roman Empire, uh, Gibbon. And he was attacking Christianity, and he coined the term, it doesn't matter, one iota. And he got the word from the word, two Greek words that were being debated about the nature of Jesus Christ. One was homoousian, homoousian. One had iota in it, one didn't. 
And the debate was whether Jesus Christ was God of divine substance or whether Jesus Christ was of a substance like God. And given, uh, with his tut-tut condescending attitude toward these sorts of things, said, well, it doesn't matter one iota. That's where that statement came from. You remember it next time you say something that doesn't matter one iota. Uh, it's an opportunity to inject. Do you know where that came from? It came from a discussion over centuries about the person of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? And it's a neat conversational opportunity to, to grab hold of something like that. Well, there's another expression, and that's this one. And it's called the philoque. Now, those of you who have had Latin, that used to be taught in some schools before sex education and all the other cultural relevant things. Here is the Latin word and, suffix tacked on to the Latin, part of the Latin noun for filios, which is son. And que is and. And it, what it means is back here, and the son. And that's where the word philoque came from. Now, in church history, philoque refers to a clause in the creeds. And I think if you have a hymn book, I'll show you where it occurs. I think we have some creeds in the back of there, back of the hymn book, somewhere. Let's see. Scripture reading somewhere in the back of this thing. Shows you how historically conscious the people were did this hymn book. Um, yes, they, they call it, it's on pay, it's on seven, look at um, 717. They number it like hymns, but turn, turn to 717. Here's where it occurs. I always like to turn to 716, 717, 718. Because whether the poor guys that put this hymn book together ever realized what they were doing, but they really screwed up right here, and I want to show you where they screwed up. In 716, we have the Apostles' Creed. Okay, that's, that's an early creed. Nobody knows where it came from. It didn't come from the Apostles. It came from some post-apostolic group. And it was an early exposition of the great truths of the Christian faith. But the problem was... It wasn't definite enough. And so you had hair splitters that came into the church and you had apostates come in denying this and that. The grease boys. These are the people that come in and slide around. You know, what does is, is mean? That kind of stuff. And it was done in church history. Well, the Nicene Creed, as you can obviously see by inspection, comparing it to the Apostles' Creed, is a bigger creed. It's got more stuff in it. And it came later. And the reason it came later and had more stuff in it is because they had more debates that were going on. Now, if you look up in the second paragraph of the Apostles' Creed, and you see where it says, and in Jesus Christ, excuse me, in Jesus Christ is only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and so forth and so on. Now come down to the Nicene Creed's second paragraph, what they do with the person of Christ. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things are made. Then it starts telling about Jesus Christ and what He did. 
What do you notice different between the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed? A complete exposition and defense of the nature of Jesus Christ. You see, that was an issue then. Because if you don't get the nature of Christ right, you will not get the gospel right and the salvation right or anything else right. So, now, compare the third paragraph. Third paragraph of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, or the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Now, the third paragraph of the Nicene Creed says, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. See what they're doing there? They're doing the Holy Spirit just what they did to Christ. They're expositing his nature. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. There is the Philoquite clause where it says, and the Son. That is the Philoquite. It was not in the original Nicene Creed. It was added years later, retroactively, to clarify the nature of the Trinity over against the Arians who were debating in the Western Church. So, it's part of an exposition and defense of the Trinity, and in particular, who the Holy Spirit is. Now, if you continue to read that same sentence, right after the Philoquay, there's another clause that tells you the practical impact of the Philoquay. In other words, by insisting on the Philoquay from the Father and the Son, they then said, here's what it means. Who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. So the Holy Spirit receives adulation as much as the Father and the Son. Does that contradict what I just said before? No. This means he is fully divine and is to be respected and treated as divine. It's just that he prefers us to direct our attention to the Son. So, we worship the Holy Spirit as God, recognizing that He leads us to Christ. That's His function, that's His duty. Okay, page 43 of the notes. If you'll just follow with me down, this is going to be through the notes, not through the Bible here for a minute. We've got to go through church history. I go through this point just to um, have you see something that you won't see. Probably, those of you who have gone to college, you probably never got this in college. I know I didn't. I went to college for years and years and never, never got this. Um, it's because we live in a secular age in which history is treated as sort of a set of marbles that go nowhere. History is just a sequence of things. Henry Ford actually had the best definition of secular history. You know what Henry Ford said it was? The sequence of one damn thing after another. And I've always laughed at that. But Henry Ford got it right. That's exactly what it is if you think of it as just secular, secular nothing. No pattern, no history, not going anywhere, not doing anything. The sequence of one damn thing after another. Henry Ford got it right on the nail. Okay, now we're going to look at history a different way. Now we're going to see ideas have consequences. 
and good ideas have good consequences, and bad ideas have bad consequences, and they work themselves out, whether men and women like it or not. Ideas have consequences historically. So let's follow the notes here. It arose in the western part of Europe in the 6th century, the debate of the Philoquay, after a long battle with a heresy of Arianism. What was Arianism? Arianism was the idea that Jesus Christ was a man, not full deity. He was a man on whom somehow the divine came. That's one kind of thing, Arianism. But ultimately, you can summarize all the variants and versions of Arianism by saying this. The second and third persons of the Trinity are totally subordinated to the first person to the point they're no longer God. The only God in the Trinity, as far as Arianism is concerned, is the Father. They were basically the precursors of Unitarians. Also, by the way, of Jehovah's Witness. They're, they're, uh, Jehovah's Witness are actually one of the finest illustrations in the 20th century of Arianism. Arianism, of course, was a subordinate heresy that upheld the deity of the Father, but made the Son and the Spirit of sub-divine nature. Now do you see why the Nicene Creed added that thing? They were fighting these guys. Arius distinguished the one eternal God from the Son, who, misspelling, who was generated by the Father and who had a beginning. He also believed the Holy Spirit was the first thing created by the Son. So you see, he, what Arius did is he took the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and he put the creator-creature distinction there. That's what was, what was going on. Now, here's what happened in history. Next paragraph. To guard against the subordinationist heresies, the Western Church... Now, let me go back into history again. Here you have Europe, Spain comes down here, the Italian boot, the Adriatic, Greece... You have the Black Sea, Turkey here, and then North Africa, so forth, and then Great Britain and Ireland up here. The church was one. That was back in the days when the church was one, and it was called the Catholic Church. It's ironic that the word Roman Catholic is opposite, because the word Catholic doesn't mean local, it means universal. So I don't know how you can have a Roman Catholic Church. Um, when you think about it. Rome means one locality, and Catholic means all localities. But there was a Catholic church, and all the creeds, if you read a church, book on church history, the creeds during this era are called the Catholic creeds. That doesn't mean the Roman Catholic creeds. It means the Catholic creeds, meaning the whole church got together and ironed these things out. But things got a little hairy, and Rome was here, and Constantinople was over here, and the church split, got further and further apart, right about here in Europe. And you watch that. Think of a map of Europe. I, I should have brought a map of Europe instead of my mess, messy scribbles here. But there's a point of church history that's very vital to know. This is called the West. This is called the East. And the Eastern Church is represented today, the same tradition, by Greek Orthodox Church, right here in Baltimore. And part of that culture of the Greek Orthodox Church is the Roman, of the Russian Orthodox Church. They're very close together. 
fact, if you study Russian and you look at the Russian script, sometimes in TV you'll see the Russian script, it actually looks like Greek. And it's a, it's a derivative of Greek. And it's ironic that here you have the atheist Soviet regime utilizing an alphabet that was inscribed with letters that came off the Greek Orthodox Church, which, were, which was Christian. So, here's, here's what happened. Over here in Spain, there was a big fight going on with the Aryans. So, the churches in this part of Europe got together and they said, we've got to do something. Well, they went ahead and they injected the Philoquay into the Nicene Creed without calling a Catholic conference. So these people in the East got really ticked off that they weren't brought into the discussion. Well, the reason they weren't brought into the discussion was Arianism wasn't an issue in the East. It was an issue in the West. There was a lot more vibrant conflict going on in the West than in the East. The East was kind of asleep, just kind of dozing off here. And so when the conflict came, it, all, it erupted in the western part of the church. So, return to the paragraph. To guard against the subordinate heresies, the western church, the western church, added the Philoquay to the Nicene Creed, which had been written many years previously. The eastern church, the orthodox, resented this addition that was made without calling a conference of both the western and the eastern churches. Left outside of the vigorous rejection of Arianism in the West, the Eastern Orthodox Church did not sharpen their understanding of the Trinity and fell into serious error that led historically to political tyranny in Russia and Eastern Europe. Think about where communism triumphed. Think about it. Right on the same crack. The same fracture, the same fissure politically, it cuts across the European continent, was exactly the place of the Iron Curtain. There is a reason that happened that way. How this happened is a fascinating illustration of the importance of Bible doctrine in the great affairs of mankind. With a weak and undeveloped concept of the Trinity, the Orthodox churches sought a unifying principle in the Father alone rather than in all three persons of the Trinity. And I have a quote here by Rashtuni, where he says, the subordination gave the primacy to nature. Man becomes, in effect, his own savior. See, if you cut the Son out and the Holy Spirit out, and you get the Father, what was the function of the Son and the Holy Spirit in, the tr in a balanced idea of the Trinity? What is the Son? He is the revelation of the Father. And what is the Holy Spirit to do? He reveals the Son. So if you sub subordinate all this, you keep the Father in name, but in substance, you don't know anything about him. The Father becomes an unknown, remote, distant God. He's not close anymore because the part of the Trinity that keeps him close has been submerged. So this is what this, what this heresy is all about. So you have this, quote, respect for this transcendent God up here, the Father, but it's not an intimate relationship anymore. And into the vacuum that's created by the lack of intimacy and the lack of approachability to God comes a substitute. And the substitute for the Son, who is going to be, by the way, the King of the Kingdom of God, comes the state or man corporate. So where this is weak, historically, what happened in the East was that the state and 
secular leaders became all-powerful. And so if you continue, in other words, the denial of the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Son shows that the Son is not God enough to send the Spirit. That is, the Son is no longer the God-man of the New Testament. And this weak Christ view led historically to acceptance of tyrannical political powers by Eastern European culture. To this day, the Russian people who grew up in a culture saturated with orthodox theology can simply cannot find the strength to stand up to political abuse and tyranny. Now we forget that our freedoms didn't come from Thomas Paine or some other atheist idiot. They came out of the Word of God. And the point is, and that's another story about the Reformation, but right here we're talking just about the Trinity. In the Trinity, if you have the Father who is revealed in the Son and the Holy Spirit who generates the Word of God, so you have the Bible, and the Bible, because the Holy Spirit indwells believers, can be interpreted by any person who reads the Scripture. Every believer is a priest. Every believer has the right to come to God directly, not through some intermediary system. And with the result of this, whole emphasis in the West was that it cut political power down to size. Because political tyranny grows when you have a passive group of population. When people don't stand up, this is why this today, this is the real debate behind the Second Amendment. It has nothing to do with the handguns. The reason why we have the Second Amendment in the United States Constitution is because it was put into the Constitution by a generation of people who had learned what lesson? What happened in Concord? What happened in Lexington? People got their guns and said, enough is enough of this outfit. Out of here. It's scary to think about it. But when you have a corrupt government, it has the right to be overthrown. Now, that's scary talk. But that's the whole thinking behind it. And what's the basis for that? The basis of that is that individual citizens, individual people, if they can come to God without an organization, they have dignity, they have worth, they have self-worth, and they cannot be denied, and they cannot be crushed and abused by a group of people who have assumed that they are the, the tyrannical powers to be. So a weak Christ generates a strong tyranny. A strong Christ revealed to people who can make decisions before that limits political power. And the tragedy, of course, is, is that in, in countries like Russia and eastern Germany, I remember there was a German girl who used to go to Beach Mountain. What was her name? Came in here. Had, hmm? Katarina? Kath, I forgot her name. I, I want to think of the skater, but it's not Katarina. Uh, anyway, she was in the, in the church, and her dad was a Western German businessman. And remember the, the Iron Curtain came down, and the Berlin Wall came down, and West Germany was saddled with, with hundreds and millions of people from East Germany. And we, we were talking to her one day, and we said, what does your dad think about what's going on? Because they, remember they were trying to introduce a capitalist-type economy in East Eastern Germany, and they had lived under communism for so long. They said, well, what's, what's your dad think about this? 
And she said, my dad says that it's like dealing with six-year-olds. There was no maturity. These people couldn't come into a store and price anything. Because, you see, when you go into a store, you make the decision about the value of what you buy or what you don't buy. These poor people, it was the government that decided what the value was. They had never exercised that part of their soul that, that recognizes values and independently evaluates reality. Everything was given to them, handed to them. And to this day, in the Soviet Union, or the Russia, there's the same problem. Russian people find it very difficult to say no. To stand up and say no. Because even before communism, what did, who ruled Russia? The czars. And it was the same thing. Same tyranny, different name. So you never had that same thing that you've got in America and England, for example. You never had rights defined in writing. You see, the Magna Carta, uh, the United States Constitution, parliamentary law is actually a secular analog to this. It is the desire of a group of people to say, look, let's put it down in writing and we all agree to these central principles and we will be ruled by these central principles. Because if you don't do that, all you've got is a subjective thing, Everybody, so anybody's interpretation from day to day. It's what the court said yesterday at 7.30. So all this comes out of the fact that in the West, you had a strong trinity. In the East, it was never clarified in the heat of controversy. Okay. Let's go down to the next statement there. The Holy Spirit is a full-fledged member of the Trinity. And obviously we can't go through those verses. I, I put them all there so you can go through them. But if you follow me through the notes, there's some highlights I want you to see. He is both a person and God. First, he is revealed to be as much of a person as the Father and the Son. Now, people often don't see that because what they do is they argue that the word spirit in the Greek is a noun that is neuter and should often have the pronoun it. And it is. Oftentimes, the pronoun to the, to the word pneuma is it. And so, just by virtue of it being a neuter noun and with pronoun it, it sounds like the Holy Spirit's a force. May the force be with you, that kind of thing. Not true. That's what we're getting at here. If you look at those verses and have time to read them, you'll see that the Bible ascribes a mind to the Holy Spirit. He has a mind of his own. He teaches men, and it doesn't teach. He has sensibility toward other persons. Ephesians 4.30 says we can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can't grieve the force of gravity. You grieve a person. And he has a will of his own. He gives spiritual gifts to believers. Every person has a spiritual gift. You have a gift. He, he has given a gift according to his choice. He builds the church. He commands people in Acts 8.29, says the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit commanded. He guides people, Romans 8.14. He argues for the truth with them. It says in John 16, when he comes, he will convince, the word convince, the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
He is sometimes lied to, Ananias and Sapphira. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You don't lie to a force. You lie to a person. He prays. Romans 8.26. Let's go to Romans 8.26. That's a neat one. This is just one excerpt. We could spend hours going through these great areas of the Holy Spirit. But in Romans 8.26, there's a neat little phrase here. It's one of these little blessing verses. In the same way, the Spirit helps our weakness. For we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, and Mike translation says, too deep for words. Actually, that's not such a sweet translation. Because if you look at the background of the word here, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for you and for me. With, it says in the King James, the groanings that cannot be uttered. But the sense of it isn't that necessarily it's, it's so omniscient language that it's so big, so deep, so hairy that we can't understand it. There's another sense to this phrase. The sense of the phrase is that it's secure communication. Now, I don't know, for those of you who have been in the military, you know that there are, there are phases of security. And one of the big things in the military is called OPSEC, Operational Security. And so when you're operating, you have codes. This is what happened with the Chinese taking our airplane and stuff. The guys had to, had to wipe out the, the, the diskettes that had all our codes on them, uh, even though they, now they know what the inside of the airplane is. Um, but security is important, obviously. So here's a picture. The idea is, here's Earth. Here's you, here's me, saint. Indwelling is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, in the context of Romans 8, we have our weaknesses. And the picture here in Romans 8 is that the Holy Spirit, from inside us, makes intercession up to the throne. And he does it on a secure link. So we have no idea what he's praying, nor does who else? Satan. Then stop it. But you see, Satan can't figure it out. That's why he has to sit and wait, and he's always kind of late. Because he's always in the reactive mode to some initiative that God has done. And God pulls it off because the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer, is making intercession here. Whether you, whether you or I pray, He is. And He's in full touch with it. Uh, that's why it says, uh, 27, He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, that's the Father, because He intercedes for us according to the will of God. He's perfect prayers. And then that's Romans 8.28. But the interesting background is what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is interceding. He's making prayer requests for us. Very humbly. And very caring. The picture of, of the intimacy of God. Second paragraph on, on this, uh, under that, par uh, on page 44 of the notes, 
Uh, that's where I address this issue that some have said the Holy Spirit is not a person because the Greek word for a spirit is, is a neuter. Well, that's not true all the time. They fail to recognize that although the noun is neuter, when it is used by New Testament author of the Holy Spirit, it sometimes is accompanied by pronouns in the masculine. And the point is, it's a violation of Greek grammar. You don't have a neuter pronoun, or a masculine pronoun, modifying a neuter noun. But they deliberately do it in the New Testament. So if they deliberately violate the normal way of speaking, what does that tell you? It tells you that they mean to make a point. That they actually have to break a rule of normal language to communicate something they're trying to communicate. Now, why do you suppose, in the providence of God, the Holy Spirit is, is a neuter now? It turns out the spirit word spirit is neuter. Here's what I think. It's just a speculation. I think that is revelatory itself of the fact the Holy Spirit wants to stay in the background and not subtract from the glory of Christ. And so he, so to speak, takes a back seat, even in the way, because who, by the way, selected the words for the Bible? It was the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit superintended the revelation, he worked it out through the language that titles of himself would be not in any way taking away from attention to Jesus Christ. Okay, bottom of page 44. We'll get into this more deeply next, next fall when we get into the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a true person as much as the Father and the Son. As we shall note below, he indwells. That's when we, we won't get onto that in the next night, next week. But he indwells each believer during the church age, moment by moment, here on earth, watching our every thought, word, and deed. We either offend him or please him as the unseen director of our lives. Because where's Christ? He's at the Father's right hand. Who's the unseen director? It's the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of his personhood, therefore, is not a trivial matter for academic theologians. It puts us on the front lines of our relationship to God himself. Then on page 45, we, we go on to the fact that the deity of the Holy Spirit. We talked about he being a person. Now we want to show that he is deity. Let's look at it. The Bible consistently ascribes to the Holy Spirit work that only God can do. He did the creating work in Genesis 1. He did the providential sustaining of creation thereafter. He holds the whole thing together. He created the scripture. He caused the incarnation in Mary's womb. He fulfills the same role of comforter that Jesus did prior to his death. Remember Jesus said, I will send you another comforter? And in the New Testament, and I want, to, I want you to see this, we're going to turn to Hebrews 10 and Jeremiah 31. Because remember how we showed the deity of Jesus by showing how he is substituted for Yahweh in the Old Testament. When you take the New Testament authors, quote the Old Testament, and they quote a passage that describes something God does, but they replace him in their quote with the Holy Spirit or with Jesus, what have they said? They've said that they must be God. I mean, these guys are Jewish monotheists. Come on. Why are they doing this? In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15. Hold the place after you get to Hebrews 10, 
15 to 17, and turn back to Jeremiah 31 from whence it was quoted. So you're going to be talking two places. Have two hands, one in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31. Now, if you look first in Jeremiah, it says, Behold, days are coming, and who's the speaker? It's Yahweh, Jehovah. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them out of the hand of Egypt. But verse 33, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, they shall be my people. See, the whole point here is God is speaking the new covenant into existence. Now if you flip over to Hebrews 10. Verse 16 is the quote. But who says it? Verse 15. See? There's the substitution happening. In the Old Testament, the quote is, is attributed to Jehovah. In the New Testament, same quote, now it's attributed to the Holy Spirit. Conclusion. Holy Spirit is Jehovah. Therefore, Holy Spirit is God. These aren't accidents. Of course, we would be remiss not to point out Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission, where it says, go forth, baptizing all nations in the names, plural, or the name, singular. It's a name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, that is a gospel announcement that clearly, clearly is attributing deity to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And that's not the Nicene Creed. That's not the church in Toledo, Spain, six centuries later. That's Matthew, for heaven's sake. Matthew's saying what Jesus told him. So this is not, didn't have to wait 500 years for the church to figure it out. It's right back here in the original text. You can argue with it and say it's wrong, but don't say that it's, it's something added to the New Testament. It's right there in the New Testament. Here in the very center of the Great Commission is the threefold name of God that includes the Holy Spirit. The Bible reveals the Holy Spirit as divine attributes. He is omniscient in 1 Corinthians 2. He's omnipresent in Psalm 139. He's omnipotent in Job 33. And he's holy in Luke chapter 11. So all of this is to say that you can show the deity of the Holy Spirit by showing he has divine attributes. You show the deity of the Holy Spirit by the law of substitution. Just the same way we operated with the Lord Jesus. We showed that Jesus Christ was God because he did the things only God could do. He has the attributes only God can have. And he is substituted in Old Testament citations. Same thing here. Exact same logic of, of proof. So, what have we said then about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force. He's a person. And obviously, we have a personal relationship with a person. So one of the things we want to, want to conclude with tonight, is before we go into the work of the Holy Spirit, is 
after we understand who the Holy Spirit is, then we understand the Trinity. The Trinity falls out or comes out of a study of who the Father is, who the Son is, and who the Holy Spirit is. And the Trinity is, is an automatic conclusion. It's not something the church added in. Okay, now I want to start on page 45 just a bit to introduce you to the... Because next week we have some pretty thick stuff going on. The work of the Holy Spirit. Since we're discussing the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in connection with Pentecost, we need to focus on his work from Pentecost to the present day. I want you to check that or underline it in the notes because I am not giving you a full-orbed exposition of the work of the Holy Spirit. I am not doing that. That would be subject to the doctrine of pneumatology. We're not doing that. Framework course isn't a substitute for theology course. All I'm doing is I'm going to focus on what the Holy Spirit is doing from Pentecost to our present day. We're just going to focus on part of what the Holy Spirit does because we want to see things that are unique to this dispensation. We want to see what is true of us as New Testament believers over against what was true of Old Testament believers so that we have perspective on our, on our, on our work. Turn to John 14:17. Here's a passage where two prepositions uh, explain the difference. In John 14, 17. Remember that prepositions are the part of speech that deal with relationships. And it's one of the evidences, by the way, of God's design and our being made in God's image that we can't use language if we don't have already established categories of existence, directions, and so on. Um, there's a diagram that every Greek student learns, and I'll just draw parts of this because it's, it's true of the English language as well as Greek. When they teach you prepositions in Greek, they draw this circle. And they tell you that, there's a, I'll, I'll use the English equivalent. They tell you, okay, here's the preposition in. Here's the preposition into. Here's the preposition out of or exit. Here's the preposition next. Uh, here's, the, here's above. Here's below. See the point? All these things are connecting relationships. And there's a structure here. Well, in John 14, in verse 17, we have an instance where you want to be careful and observe the details of how the text reads. John 14, 17. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold or know him, but you know him because he abides with you. What's the tense of the verb? Present. Present to when? Prior to Pentecost or after Pentecost? When is John 14 occurring? It's in the upper room. Jesus hasn't died yet. So this is pre-Pentecost, right? 
So it's saying that the Holy Spirit's relationship to believers prior to Pentecost was he was with them. And Jesus says, but he will, future, after Pentecost, he will be in you. Different preposition, different relationship. And that shift from the Holy Spirit being with believers to the in believers is what we want to focus on. What difference does that make? What is going on here? I mean, these people were saved. We know from Paul's discussion that they were saved by faith. They trusted and they did not have, were not saved by works. Holy Spirit revealed the gospel to them. Holy Spirit revealed the gospel to us. Holy Spirit held the creation together before Pentecost. Holy Spirit holds the creation together after Pentecost. But the notes that I've given you, I've tried in the next few pages, which we will discuss next week, to get at the difference between what was going on in believers' lives. We're not worrying about the world here, not worrying about unbelievers. We're worrying about believers. What did the Holy Spirit do in the Old Testament with believers versus what is the Holy Spirit doing now, this side of Pentecost in the church age? Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you have not left us comfortless, but you have given us the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that in his name, or his, through, his, through Christ's name, he ministers to us, and we want to know more of how he works his ways in our lives, that we may respect him, we may adore him, and accord him the, uh, the worship and the glory that he should be accorded. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.